Hey, New City, I'm glad you are joining us today. My name is Nate Bush, going to be the lead pastor here at New City Church. We start a new series today, the book of Esther. Uh, it is called Godless. And the subtitle of our sermon today is, or the, the whole series, is Faith in a Godless Time. And when times get uncertain and when times get a little crazy, it is natural to be asking the question, who's really in power? Like, who's really in charge right now? I was reading Ecclesiastes the other day, and the author of Ecclesiastes says this. He said, there is a vanity that takes place on earth. Here's the vanity. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that is also uh, is a vanity. What the author of Ecclesiastes is letting us in on is that sometimes it seems like the wicked prosper, and sometimes it seems that the righteous are, go, are suffering what the wicked should be suffering, and the world seems really unjust. And when you're looking at the world sometimes and you see the injustice in the world, it is easy to throw your hands up and say, it doesn't look like anybody's in charge at all. Uh, we need the book of Esther because we need Esther to help open our eyes a little bit to see the God who is both good and is in charge, is in power. Esther is a book written during a time when God's people are in exile, and exile is a biblical motif that we need to embrace. It's a biblical story frame that we need to embrace in our current cultural context. In 1 Peter 2.11, Peter urges us as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh which wage war against the soul. And so he says, you are a sojourner, you are an exile. This is a motif for the Christian life. And one of the reasons why we need the motif of exile is because in exile, we are not people in power. Uh, that is essential to being an exile. You, have, uh, you are in a position where you do not hold power. And many people are realizing right now in the world that uh, the power structures, the power systems are shifting so rapidly that we don't know who's in charge, but we know that it's not us. And in Esther, we read in Esther 1.1, these words. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, uh, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, Now, this is quite the opening to a story. If you were to write this opening in a slightly different way to kind of give it a sort of modern heading, it would read this way. It is 483 BC, King Xerxes, that's Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, reigns over almost all the people in the known world. And this is someone who is in power, and no one is in greater power than King Xerxes. You see, in exile, you are people that are not in power. That's why we need the book of Esther, because this is a time when God's people are not in power. In exile, you are not a people in power, and you are subjects of the people who are in power and we need to see what is happening here on the first, in the first verse of the first chapter of Esther. Now in the days of Ahasuerus. Now why is this important? Why does it say now in the days of King Artaxerxes? Well, this word in Hebrew mimics the word headache. It's as if there's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek beginning to the whole narrative. It's as if you're introduced to this powerful king who is in control of 120 provinces that cover most of the known world, 
and he's automatically, at the very beginning, noted as being King Headache, which goes to show that uh, it's not just modern politicians that get in our heads and cause us to have massive headaches. Uh, This was true of King uh, Xerxes as well. See, life in exile, it can have you just feeling a little bit out of control. It can have you feeling a little bit like those who are giving you a headache are the ones who are in control. People who are, you know, you don't always trust. Well, in this particular exile narrative, there is a villain. His name is Haman. We'll come across him later. We won't spend a lot of time on Haman today. But Haman is is called the enemy of all the Jews because he plotted against the Jews, actually plotted a genocide against the Jews. Uh, And and one of the out comes of Esther, when we get to see the the final story played out, there's a celebration enacted into law, a celebration called Purim. And it's called that because there was a casting of a pure, a a die. And that casting of the die by Haman was a casting of the die by Haman deciding what day uh, of, of the month he was going to call for the genocide of the Jews. And so totally, absolutely out of control. You see, in Esther, the faith of the Jews seems dependent on evil and incompetent leaders who made decisions by rolling the dice. And maybe there are times in your own life uh, where you felt like there are leaders in charge who seem to be making decisions flippantly, like rolling the dice. But what you will find in Esther is even though it seems like Wicked leaders are in control and they're making decisions about genocide by rolling dice. What you will find in Esther is the invisible hand of God fulfilling his covenant promise. What you will find in Esther is a series of coincidences that in hindsight don't seem so coincidental after all. You see, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, the Bible says, in your offspring, this is God speaking to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That there's gonna be a massive blessing that comes through Abraham. And in Galatians 3, 8, we see this. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And so Paul in Galatians looking back at God speaking to Abraham about the blessing that would come through the Jews, the blessing that would come from his people, he said that was preaching the gospel. That was God laying the tracks for the good news. The good news that from this nation we born a savior, his name would be Jesus, that he would live for us and die for us and raise from the grave for us and give us his righteousness and conquer our sin and conquer our death. In Galatians 3, 9, Paul says, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, why is this important for you and I to understand? Well, in Esther, what happens is God is fulfilling his covenant promise to the people of Israel, and he's the quiet and silent rescuer in the text. And Esther is not just a Jewish story. It's not just Jewish history. It's Christian history. It's a part of our gospel narrative. It's one of the stories that shows us God's covenant faithfulness. But Esther's not just a story about God's covenant faithfulness. Esther is kind of a curious story. It's a a curious history. Karen Job's excellent commentary on Esther, she says this. Other than the fact that the story is about Jewish people, 
There's nothing Jewish about it in the religious sense. It contains neither the divine name Yahweh nor Elohim, the Hebrew noun meaning God, unlike the book of Daniel, which is also set in the court of a pagan king. No one prays in the book of Esther. No one has an an apocalyptic vision in the Hebrew book of Esther. There is no apparent concern for the law. And in this book, there is not even one tiny miracle. So what do we do with this curious history of a time when God seems silent? In fact, his name is not even mentioned. There is a a mention of fasting, but no mention of prayer, certainly no content of anyone's prayer. There's no overt miracle in the book of Esther you could point to and go, aha, there it is, like like the fiery furnace or being rescued from the lion's den. And so I want to hit pause for a second and speak to you. Many of you who attend New City, who watch New City, have friends, and you may even be this person. You feel like life has had its way with you. And maybe to you it seems like no divine hand is at work in your life. And maybe you have no hope of a miracle, even evidence that miracles even happen. And if that's true of you, Esther is the book for you. And that's why I chose this study. Because it's not a, it's not a story of, of, of massive miracles. It's not a story of, of tremendous faith of any individual. It's a story of God's covenant keeping a promise keeping hand at work quietly and silently in history protecting his people you see it's not what Esther says to us that's important and that's what I want you to know today it's not what Esther says to us that's important it's what Esther what Esther shows us that's important you could even think of Esther what the book of Esther is doing is pulling back the curtain for us letting us see a little bit behind the curtain, just giving us a glimmer of the God who's at work in human history. Esther shows us the invisible hand of God, shows us that God's at work. Even when you don't see him, he's at work. See, it may look like a series of coincidences in the book of Esther, but in reality, it is God working through imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will. And God does, by the way, work through imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will. I'm so glad he does that still today. When you're reading Esther, here's here's a challenge for you. When you're reading Esther, don't try to moralize the characters. And I am assuming that you'll pick it up and read it, or at least listen to it in the car. Pick up the ESV Bible app, find the New City app, and and listen to it, or, or read it. And when you're reading Esther, don't try to moralize the characters. The immorality or amorality of Esther is part of the puzzle. It, it, it truly is part of the puzzle. You see, in Esther, compromised, immoral people get to participate in God's perfect plan to bring about the salvation of Jewish people all over Persia. And the lesson for you and me is if you have been compromised, if you've been compromised morally and you feel disqualified, God can still use you and he has a plan for you. 
there are so many people who look at their lives and feel unusable. And I want to show you in the book of Esther that you are not unusable. That if you could make yourself available to God's sovereign plan in your life, he could use you, even you, to accomplish his perfect will. So the question that we're looking at today and the section of Esther we'll be studying, we'll be looking at verses one, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse 5. The question we're looking at is, who is really in power? Who's really in power? And one of the things that pops off the page right away is, earthly power is not what it appears to be. It simply isn't what it appears to be. And the first point I want to highlight is this. Don't be enamored by earthly power. Like just don't be enamored by it. Look at verse two. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the province were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And so we see here a portrait of a king, King Hedek here, who is uh, seemingly insecure enough that for 180 days he wants to make it clear that everybody knows how powerful he is and how rich he is. And he wants all the governors and everybody around him who's in power to be in awe of his power. And earthly power is fueled by personal pride and a desire to save face. And I think what's happening here in this 180 day feast he's throwing for all the governors and officials and noblemen, all the people in power, is he's trying to do exactly that, save face. Christopher Ashton's commentary says, it turns out Xerxes suffered a succession of defeats at the hands of the, of the Greeks in a series of battles between 45 BC and 479 BC. The first readers of Esther would no doubt have known this. And if you want to see it dramatized, not that I'm encouraging you to see it, but if you wanted to see this season of Xerxes' life dramatized, it would be in the movie 300. Uh, that is a movie that is depicting this particular period in Xerxes' life. So he loses to the Greeks in a series of wars. He has a 180-day festival to say, I am still powerful, I'm still mighty, I'm still in control. And he turns everyone's focus towards that worship of those things, earthly powers, worship. At the altar of power, materialism, and sensuality, and he wants everybody to be turned that way. You see, when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present at Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days. This is an additional seven-day party to follow the 180-day party because the 180-day party wasn't enough. And so you see here, even in the opening verses of Esther, you have a, a king who seems to have a, an ego that cannot be satisfied with a 180-day party. So there's another seven-day party, invites everybody in the citadel to come. Drinks were served and golden vessels. It said in an earlier verse that he, he <laughs> was just showing off all the beautiful uh, 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 architecture of uh, the, the citadel, his couches made of gold. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And in verse 8, he gives a drinking edict, <laughs> an official order from the king to drink. 
There is no compulsion. Now, this could mean two things. One, it could mean drink as much as you want, or it could mean you don't have to drink everything there is, which could have also been an order the king had, could give and kings were known to give. And so he gives a drinking edict, a drinking order. There's no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And then in verse 9, you find this curious verse. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. And so there are two parties. One party of men that is a, a drunken stupor and another party of women that we aren't given much commentary on. In fact, I don't want to spend too much time suggesting things that are simply our narrator doesn't find it necessary to suggest. But perhaps the women may have been avoiding the drunk men who had been ordered to, and I quote, do as each man desired. And so it would make sense then that the women are saying, let's have a party over here because all the drunk men have just been ordered to drink and to do as they please. And it's important, I think, to, to note here Martin Luther's disdain for the book of Esther. Martin Luther wrote, I am so great an enemy to the second book of the Maccabees and to Esther that I wish they had not come to us at all for they have too many heathen unnatural, unnatural relatives. <laughs> there we go. To, to say it in a slightly different way, Martin Luther did not think kindly of Esther because Esther is not a children's book. It's a serious evaluation of God at work in a world under a fairly dark spell. In the book of Esther, you have genocidal rulers. You have Esther winning essentially a, a, a competition that wasn't, let's say, about her brain and her wit or even uh, how she looked, but more how she pleased the king. You, you have king making decisions under drunken stupors. In fact, it seems as though the king is either drunk or getting drunk or sobering up from having been drunk in the entire narrative. One of the principles, one of the things we're to be picking up here from this particular king is that more longs for more, but more is never satisfied. And it seems as though the 180 days didn't do it for King Xerxes. The seven-day additional party wasn't doing it for King Xerxes. So on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, which is most definitely a euphemism, he is plastered. And so on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he gets seven eunuchs together because this is how kings do things. And so he goes, he sends out seven eunuchs to find Queen Vashti and to bid Queen Vashti, actually literally to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty for she was lovely to look at. A lot of commentators have suggested here, he says, bring the queen in her crown, but mentions nothing else and for her to wear. It is safe to say the king is not looking to show off Vashti's intellect or personality. He's looking for more admiration for himself. He's looking to, to say to all of the men of the citadel, look at the kind of women that I get. I'm going to speak to you a little tongue-in-cheek here. This is my best. 
not my best work at sarcasm, but this is a little bit of sarcasm for you. <laughs> I know it's hard to imagine in our day. But there was once a culture so superficial that middle-aged men would try to impress their friends by showing off their wealth and their power by accumulating trophies that included their wives. However, once there was a time where men were that superficial. I know it's hard to imagine, but once there was a time. Lesson one is don't be enamored by earthly power. You see this king who is a headache for the Jews, putting on display his power. And what we find right away in the first chapter of Esther is that earthly power is limited power. It seems that this, the first 11 verses of Esther are dedicated to you and me discovering that Xerxes thinks very highly of himself and he wants you to think very highly of him too. But in verse 12, Queen Vashti refuses to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So Queen Vashti says no. It seems that the king has the power to do almost anything he wants but control a human heart. Now, I want to say we must fight the temptation to moralize the motives of Vashti. The narrator sees no benefit in us knowing the motives of Vashti. Her motives are not important to the story being told. So I want to give you some some insights into what we can be looking for. If we're not looking for the moral motives of Vashti, she too could have been drunken in answering in her drunkenness. She could have uh, had all kinds of mixed emotions, uh, mixed motives, and we don't know what they were. And it's, it is, I think, foolish to, to try to, to place motives in uh, the, the mouth of our narrator and Esther. But the three observations are this, and these are ones that we can certainly make, that no one has the power to control another human's heart. It doesn't matter if you're the king who is the most powerful king in the, in the entire world at that given time, he doesn't have the power to control another human's heart. The second point is only God has the power to change a human heart. And in Proverbs 21.1, we read, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Only God has the power to change a human heart. The third lesson, I think this is the primary lesson for why Vashti said no, is to affirm for us that our story is secure in the hands of God. I want you to look at this story, this moment in the story, in the lens, through the lens of Romans 15.4. For whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures we might have hope. And so there are stories that were, that were written in the Old Testament that are there for us to have uh, hope and that we might build endurance. And what's here? What's here in this text that gives us hope that we might build endurance? You see, if Vashti had not said no to the king, this story would likely have ended in the genocide of the Jews. See, Vashti said no, which is going to lead the king to throw a contest of sorts that Esther will win, and Esther will win that. She'll be in a position then to petition the king uh, against the genocide of the Jews, and she will save many Jews' lives. And she was at that particular time, in that particular moment, because that's where God wanted her to be. And we see this coincidence of history 
playing out in a seemingly providential way. You see, even though God's in charge and we can see him in charge and we can see evidence of him in charge, we have this benefit of reading Esther with hindsight. And hopefully, Esther begins to open our eyes, the book of Esther begins to open our eyes to see our present circumstance a little more clearly. But the people of the text, like the people of our day, don't always see God's hand at work. And when earthly powers lose the heart of the people, they try to bend their will with the law. And immediately, one of the seven trusted sort of counselors or governors uh, uh, says to Xerxes, he says, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Isn't there a law against like saying no? Like uh, wives can't say no to their husbands. For the queen's behavior, verse 17, will be made to known, made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with cont- contempt. Since they will say King Ashuerus's uh, command, commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come. Queen Vashti is a bad example for all the women of Persia. They might start thinking with minds of their own. In verse 19, if it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it, let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. That Vashti is never again to come before the king Ashuerus, and let the, let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. And in verse 20, so the decree, so when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Now, <laughs> I want you to, I mean, this is supposed to be, I think, you're supposed to be reading this with a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I mean, here's a group of drunk men, seven men and a king, thinking to themselves in their drunkenness, you know what's wrong with women in the world? We haven't written it out in law that they have to honor us. And all we have to do is make a law that women will honor us, and then they'll honor us. And you can imagine, you, you couldn't read Esther as a, a Jewish child until you reach the age of 13, because the content in this book is scandalous. So you can imagine being a, a 13-year-old boy, reading this with your mom, and the, 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 the mother in the home, smiling and smirking, going, yeah, these dumb idiot men. But Christopher Ash makes note that it is a characteristic of the world empire, today as then, that the answer to a problem is so often to pass a new law, as if a law could ever change a human heart. And the humorous irony of this law is it secures that Vashti is now forbidden to do the very thing she refused to do. I mean, that's, that's the humorous part of the story. The king goes, you know what? You refuse me, I'm gonna make it so that you have to always refuse me. And thus we have a little comical turn in the narrative. You see, I think there's a certain blind recklessness that attaches itself to those in power. 
It's a blind recklessness because power blinds us. And we can excuse a lot of reckless behavior because power has a way of sort of covering up some of that recklessness. Or at least the power tends to, to, tends to blind your own eyes to yourself and turns, tends to blind the eyes of those who want your power, or taste your power to your own recklessness. But it says in verse one of chapter two, after these things, when the anger of the king Ashuerus had abated, in other words, he sobered up. So after these things, he got sober, and he's like, what did I do? He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her, and he suddenly is having an awakening. I am a king without a queen. Kind of a side note about how business was done in Persia. Herodotus, a contemporary historian of the time, says, moreover, it is there, the Persians' custom to deliberate about the gravest matters when they are drunk. This was, this was how government was done. And what they approved in their councils is, opposed, is proposed to them the next day by the master of the house where they deliberate. And when they are now sober, and if being sober they still approve it, they act thereon. But if not, they cast it aside. And when they have taken counsel about a matter, when sober, they decide upon it when they are drunk. <laughs> so what happens is they get drunk. They go, let's create some great ideas. And somebody who's sober writes them down. And the next day when they sober up, they go, that sounded like a good idea. I'm so glad that came to us in our drunkenness. Well, he's, he's in this state. He's come, he's come to terms in his sobriety with the mistake that he's made. He apparently has some sense of affection for Vashti and it's sad that she is now gone. And so we're being taught here in the early verses of this text, don't be enamored by earthly power. Earthly power is limited and, and sadly, earthly power is exploitive. You see that exploitation of Vashti in chapter one and in chapter two, you see the exploitation of many, many other women. Then the king's young men, this is not one of those who were council members, but one of his attendants, his servants in his home, says to the king, uh, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa and the citadel under custody of Haggai uh, and the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. And let the young woman who pleases the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. And so he has not a beauty contest and it's not certainly not a contest for intellect and personality. This is a contest for who pleases the king the most. This is a a sign and symbol that power often produces exploitation. And in Persia, everyone's sexuality was subject to the king. Again, from Karen Job's commentary, she says, Herodotus also reports that 500 young boys were gathered each year and castrated to serve as eunuchs in the Persian court. One might argue that the young women actually got the better deal. Let's have an honest moment, if you don't mind. 
We live in a world where powerful people treat other people as if they exist merely for the benefit of the powerful rather than having dignity in their own right. There are people in power, and they're not, they, don't have to, they don't have to be kings. They just have a little bit more power than the other. And there are people in power in the world today who leverage that power to exploit and harm those they have not given the right to have equal dignity. So Esther is raising for you and me a question, who's really in power? It's answering the question by saying earthly power is not what it appears to be. At first look, Xerxes has it all. That's not the whole story. And so we must, be, we must not be enamored by the limited and exploited, exploitative earthly powers. We can't be enamored by the immorality. And quite frankly, we've got to recognize the, the limitations of earthly power. Now, there's a lot that's been said in the narrative so, thus far that is shocking. It is uh, a history that is shocking to the system. The, the materialism, the, the drunkenness, the exploitation uh, of boys and women. But perhaps to the Jewish reader, verse five would have been, in the first hearing, the most shocking verse of all the verses we've read today. Now there was a Jew. This is the first mention of anything that rings like a Bible book. We hear that there is a Jew. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, which means now there's a Jew who is in some position of power because This Jew is in Susa, the citadel. But the shocker here, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. Now, Mordecai is not a Jewish name. Mordecai comes from Morduk, a Babylonian god. And it is Hard to see where Mordecai's Babylonian identity ends and his Jewish identity begins. And it appears as though we are so deep into exile that Mordecai the Jew is somebody who represents a people who have all but lost their identity. The first mention of anything Jewish is a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And it happened right here on the opening pages. Christian people should also be shocked when they can't identify when a Christian's Americanism begins and when their Christianity or where their Americanism ends and their Christianity begins. And too often there's, there's little to no distinction visible in the Christian's life, just no distinction. They look like the rest of secular society. I've been reading a book lately called Beautiful Resistance and man, it's a great book. John Tyson's book asks some challenging questions for you and me. 
And I want to ask these questions of you. Should we just give up and capitulate to the powers of our time? Should we sit by while our faith is taken captive by political and ideological forces? Should we avert our eyes while mammon wreaks havoc on our hearts? Should we watch 20 million young people leave the church in our generation? A million a year give up faith? Is it possible to build community in such a way that though it is small, generations to come will look back on our faithfulness in a generation of compromise? Come on now. Is it possible our children or grandchildren will look back on us living in this moment and say, my parents and my grandparents didn't compromise? Our children are looking at the witness in our lives. And they can see if our primary concern is of earthly power or a heavenly one. Tyson is referring to a study that the Pine Tops Foundation revealed. Pine Tops, in their base case scenario, says that we are looking at, in American society, a profound shift. A million young people every year will leave the faith they were raised in. To put that number in context, it's larger and dramatically larger than the number of abortions that occur every year in America. And what's one of the primary reasons? Is young people are looking at the older generation and they see hypocrisy. They see compromise. And one of the questions that we are supposed to be wrestling with in the text right here is what shapes what? Are you being formed by Christ or by culture? What is the primary formative force in your life? Is it Christ or culture? In Isaiah 64, 8, we read, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. Clay, here's a metaphor. But I, I, have, a, I, I have a fear <laughs> that too many Christians in society right now are, are clay being molded by cultural forces and by secular forces and by political forces and not being shaped by Christ their Savior. Our Christian formation must be stronger than our cultural formation. We have to be bowing the knee to Jesus. The question I've been wrestling with in this text is what benefit are we to a world being exploited by earthly powers if we give up on our Christian distinction? Mike Koster's really good book, Faith Among the Faithless, says Esther 1 ends with Xerxes reminding the empire that women are subservient to men. A secular age accomplishes something similar. Divorcing sex from anything meaningful, creating the illusion of autonomy, and immersing women in a world that talks a good feminist game. 
while consistently objectifying women and training them to be taken advantage of by men. One is overt, the other is subversive. Both result in coercive and dehumanizing cultures that uh, operate in service to an idol. There is an invitation in the first few verses of Esther. It's an invitation to see God's faithful hand at work, even when people are faithless. But it's also an invitation of your eyes open. <laughs> Let me say it this way. If we don't have anything different to offer the world in pain right now, they're going to stop asking us for answers. There was an article in the New York Times entitled Googling for God. This is what the article points out. Searches questioning God's existence are up. For what reason? The same reason Pine Tops has made the observation that many young people are leaving the faith. The same reason John Tyson challenges us to, to, to evaluate, are we going to be a generation that compromises? Or are we going to just participate in secular society, living out the values of the secular world? So searches questioning God's existence are up. Porn searches are up 83%. This is in the last decade. For heroin, it's 32%. How are the Ten Commandments doing? Not well. Love thy neighbor is the most common search with the word neighbor in it, but right behind it at number two is neighbor porn. The top Google search, including the word God, is God of War, a video game. And so what Esther chapter one to chapter two, verse five is saying to us is don't be enamored by secular power. The earthly systems of this world offer us only an illusory power. Esther's also showing us that even if you don't see God in your present story right now, he is present. This, is my, this has been the prayer I've been praying over this message today. I took a walk this afternoon and prayed this prayer over you today. I just prayed, Lord, open our eyes. I pray for the Lord to open your eyes. And what I mean by that is oh, open our eyes to see the foolhardy nature of earthly powers and not to be enamored with them or pursue them or seek them when we can see the God who is steering history in the pages of Esther. Let's uh, see him as our eyes open to see earthly power for what it is and to call out his exploitation and not participate in that exploitation. And let's, let's have our eyes fixed on God who's redeeming and restoring a world that's been lost and broken by sin. Lord, open our eyes.
And Karen Job says the great paradox of Esther is that God is omnipotently present even where God is most conspicuously absent. And so may I encourage you, don't give up on God. God has not given up on you. God is faithful. He is faithful even when we are faithless. But the earthly systems, they're offering us a false choice, a false choice between assimilating, giving up and giving in, or isolating and hiding and tucking away in the world. And again, from Mike Cosper's book, he says, assimilation is a failure of nerve. Esther is trying, the book of Esther is trying to give you the nerve. Assimilation is a failure of nerve, and isolation is a failure of heart. Assimilation fails to resist, while isolation fails to love. There is a God right now in the world who is actively but quietly putting things back together. And can I just tell you, friend, he will do that for you. He's doing it in the book of Esther. You'll see it, quietly working to restore the world lost and broken by sin, providing a way for the Savior of the world, who will live the life that we could not live, who could die the death that we should have died, pay the penalty for all of our busted (laughs) behavior, all the wrongs of our life. He nails to the cross. He buries him away. He rises in the grave. He conquers our sin and death. He gives us new life. There is a God who is quietly putting things back together. His name is Jesus. And he'll do that for you. In fact, if you just said to to Jesus today, Jesus, (laughs) I need help putting it back together. Jesus is there for you. But I want you to know something else, friend. He will also do some of that work through you if you let him. Next week, we're going to take a a pause in the message just to talk about how we can participate with God and bring his renewal work to areas of our city, areas of the world, they're experiencing the exploitation of power, of the powerful. This series is called Faith in a Godless Time. And I really do hope that this series will build your faith. And that you'll see that the time may feel and seem sometimes godless, but you'll have eyes that are open to see the work of God and the everyday stuff of life. We end our teaching time with generosity, communion, and prayer. And what I want you to do is be generous to New City. We are uh, so grateful for your generosity. You can give online. Uh, you can give on the app. You can certainly text to give. You can give uh, by sending us a check in the mail. New City is a church that's committed right now in this season to be good news for people in the city with their lives and empowering people to not only uh, share the good news story, but to be the good news message in their everyday life. And we're so grateful for all those opportunities we get to do that at New City Church. You can celebrate communion at home or in person with us in service. Uh, you can break the bread. Remember Christ's body broken for you. You can take the cup. Remember his blood shed for you. And we end our time with a time of prayer. And I've got a very simple prayer to pray with you today. And I'd love for you to pray this prayer with me. It simply, it, it simply goes this way. Lord, open our eyes to see you at work. And open our hands to join you in that work. Amen. God bless. Love you guys.